You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. My name is Dr. Alexis Albion. I'm a curator at the International Spy Museum. And today we're talking to Ben McIntyre about his latest book, Agent Sonia, Moscow's Most Daring Wartime Spy. Ben is a writer at large for the Times of London, which I assume means that you get to do whatever you want. Uh, I think it really means writer at lunch, but that's, <laughs> that's the plan anyway. Sounds fantastic. And, and of course, the best-selling author of numerous books, by my count, this is your 13th. It is. It's which 13th. means that you've actually written one less than um, the woman we're going to be talking about today. Aww. 14, so yep. you've got a little bit more work to go. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is uh, uh, many books. I think people may know uh, one of your more recent ones, A Spy Among Friends, Kim Philby and the Great Betrayal, um, which is one of my favorites. And um, my, my count as well, this is your eighth book related to intelligence in some way. Yes, it, I think that is right. I think my first all that time ago was Agent Zigzag, and I think that's right, I think this is number eight. So either that says something very strange about me, or it says that it's a subject that keeps on giving, but it's You know, something... I should mention the name of the book that we're actually talking about today, which I just realized I didn't do. Anyway, we're talking about um, Agent Sonia, um, Moscow's most daring wartime spy. It's about uh, Ursula Kuczynski. I'm going to call her Ursula um, because that was, Ursula was her, her given name. She went by many different names and, uh, and of course the code name, Agent Sonia. Um, we're going to get into her in a little bit, but I, I wanted to go back to your writing about intelligence because I was personally interested. You know, how did you get into that? Um, and and what what is, is clearly you have the spy bug. What is so personally interesting to you about this topic? I well, there are two two elements to that really. One is that here in here in Britain uh, there was a kind of sea change with regard to official secrecy in about two thousand and six, when MI five and the intelligence services began releasing their archives. They began to release a huge amount of hitherto classified material mm. that contained some absolute gold dust. It contained things that were never really ever supposed to have been made public. And so there was, there's one very practical answer to that, which is that there's this vast amount of material and it continues to be released. Every year, uh, the intelligence service, the security service releases a chunk of material and sometimes 
hundreds of thousands of pages of it, and it, it almost always throws up some wonderful new material. In a more general way, why do I write about this area? One reason is that I was very attracted by the whole intelligence um, profession very early on in, in my life. It didn't go anywhere, I'm delighted mm. to say. Uh, did I, you think I, about it? Did you, I did, yeah. yeah I did. You were at Cambridge, I believe, I was, which yeah. is, of course, famous uh, recruiting ground yeah. for spies. Um, so did anybody ever approach you? Did you ever I did. I was approached. I, I was, as we say here, I was tapped out. Um, and I, I did go and I initially had, to, I mean, this is no secret because I've written about it many times, but so I was interviewed. I, I, I had a sort of very brief flirtation uh, with, uh, with the intelligence services. I think they decided long before I did that I wasn't really cut out for this on the grounds that as I just demonstrated, I can't really keep a secret, um, which is kind of rather crucial in that business. Um, so I've, I've always been interested in it and I've maintained an interest in that, but I think sort of more generally, the fantastic thing about the espionage world is that you can write about the sorts of subject that novelists usually commandeer and dominate. Loyalty, love, betrayal, imagination, adventure, romance, all those, those things that we are kind of used to in fictional literature. But when you, when you have the right material, and it, it doesn't always happen, but when you do have enough to go on, when there's enough sort of grit, as it were, you can tell a non-fiction story as if it was a novel, as if it was a narrative, without ever doing any violence to the facts. So you, you really can do that thing that is the, what one always tries to do in, in, in narrative non-fiction, which is to tell something that feels like uh, a, a novel, but actually is completely true. And I'm always incredibly flattered um, when people say, oh gosh, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. This reads like a novel. You have to pinch yourself because it's all true. And that is, that is it's not, it's not unique to spycraft, it's not unique to espionage, but it is, it is something that runs through a, a lot of the books that I've written, which is that if you try to make this stuff up, no one would believe you because it's just too extraordinary. And, and spies, I mean, imagination is absolutely central to, to spying in lots of ways. I think there's no accident really that some of the greatest novelists of modern times have also been intelligence officers because in a way the two worlds are not so different. You are trying to create a false world in lots of ways, in both, both as a novelist and as an intelligence officer, and you are other people into it. And the better you are at doing that, the more likely it is to work. So you're dealing with people who have very vivid imaginations, sometimes to the point where they make it up. So, so you, have, you have that other extra bit, which is that lies, uh, uh, spies are not only, often I found extremely indiscreet. I mean, they're, very, they're often very happy to talk about their lives. But they're also quite happy to make it up too, so that you end up sometimes having to fill it out, the reality from the from the from their own fictions. Well, that is one of the problems of writing intelligence history, of course, mm. is is the source material, mm. <laughs> um, getting a hold of it in the first place, as you've talked about. Mm. Um, lots of it is in the archives. Some of it comes out. Sometimes you know how much is there. Sometimes you don't. Even when things are declassified, you don't know what has remained classified very often. And then uh, if you rely on memoirs, um, and that is a, a big part of, of the book we're talking about today, mm. how much of that is, is true? How much of that is, is imagined? How much of that might be disinformation? Um, that's, it, the judgment, that's the judgment one has to make. And that is half pleasure. And I guess the craft of doing these things is that you're dealing with pretty unreliable narrators. And memoir, as we know, is not fact. It's a very, it's a very different thing. And mm. funnily enough, in the last book I did, which was focused very particularly on one individual, Oleg Gordievsky, who was a who was a KGB officer who spied for the West for many, many years. And and my much of that research was based on interviews with Oleg himself over weeks and weeks and months and months and months. And what was so extraordinary that, about that was discovering that his memory of his own life mm. was fallible. That, that even though it was done in completely good faith, he's an extraordinarily honest person, he would tell me a story about his life. And because I was able to talk to the officers who'd run him and have the archival material and be able to check what he was saying against that, I found myself in the bizarre position of having to say to a living person, actually, yeah. your memory is not correct. Yeah. You think Tuesday, it was a Thursday. <clears throat> he was wonderful at it because he, he utterly accepted that, that memory is fallible and, and memoir particularly so because memoirs and reminiscences you are telling a story and, and often if you've told the story 
a few times. We all do this, you know, it, it, it develops a pattern of truth. And then eventually it becomes truth, it becomes your truth, but it may end up being quite a long way from the facts. So one just has to aim off with that and or aim off with it. You you work out the ones that you can trust and those that you don't. And, and Ursula Kaczynski is a very good example of this because she wrote in later life, and this is to jump a little ahead of the story, but she wrote a, a great, a, a large number of books um, in Behind the Iron Curtain. And, and her way of getting around the censorship was to write what purported to be novels, but what were in reality memoir. Um, she made up the names, she sometimes made up the places, but the, but the facts that what she was describing in there was the literal memory that she had. Now that doesn't necessarily make it truth, mm -hmm. but it makes it her truth. Right. And, and since I was writing a story about and through her, those became absolutely invaluable sources of information, um, which I treated, and I discussed this a great deal with her family, and they agreed. They said, this is, to all intents and purposes, this is her fact. This, this can be treated as reality. These aren't really novels. They're not even really stories. They're disguised autobiographies. Mm. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's wonderful. Her story, uh, her, her, her story really has everything in it. And I think, I think that fact, that sort of coda at the end, that she does become a novelist, uh, a novelist making up stories about herself, is, is really almost the perfect ending for her story. Oh. But we do skip to the end. Right. Now, I, I, I want to just go back to the beginning again, and I, I wanted to follow up a little bit on, on asking you about, about the spy bug that you have, because this is the first female spy story that, that you've written about in depth. And um, I, I wonder what, what brought you to get interested in Agent Sonia, in Ursula Kaczynski, and, and more so, you know, was it different uh, immersing yourself in the story of a, of a, of a female spy. What, what was different about that? In two ways, this book is very different from any I've done before. Mm. One, the, the gender thing, which, which I'd love to talk to you about. And the other is that in another way, it's the other end of the telescope, because I'm writing here about a communist agent. I'm writing about somebody who was, for the Cold War at least, on the other side from the West. I mean, she was, she, she, she spied against the Nazis in the first half of her life and then against the West in the second half of her spying life. So it really is, it's, it, I'm looking at this from the other side of the mirror, if you like, and that was fascinating. Now, in terms of writing about and through a woman, one of the reasons people have never heard of Ursula Kaczynski, and she is, she is, she is not known particularly in the literature, she crops up here and there, is, I'm afraid, because she was a woman. She, she's not, she was not only enabled herself to become more or less invisible when she was spying, but even afterwards, because this is such a male-dominated game, or was hugely male-dominated in the 20th century. I mean, not only were, I mean, women intelligence officers in the in the Soviet Union were not just rare. They, I mean, she was virtually unique. That they, they were, they, they did not. It was not an equal opportunities employer by any stretch of the imagination. So she is rather hidden from history for that reason. And I love that. I love the fact that here was somebody who had had an enormous impact on world history but who had kind of flown below the radar for, for so long. And there were moments when it was, you know, I was trying to write about a woman's experiences. And that's a, if you're not a woman, that is a difficult thing to do. Ursula was much married. Ursula had many lovers. Ursula had a number of children by different men. You know, hers was a tumultuous and complicated emotional life. Mm. And it was a real challenge at times to try to work myself into that but i was hugely aided by the fact that i in a funny sort of way i had ursula holding my hand through it because through her own writings i was able without having to project my own views onto her life i had her testimony i had her account of her own life multiply both in her fiction but also crucially she wrote a memoir i mean ursula wrote a memoir in the 1970s which was published in east germany under the control of the Stasi. Um, so the, the, the secret police in, in Germany, uh, East Germany, Communist Germany, allowed her to publish, but only under very strict circumstances. So when she produced her manuscript, which was completely honest, it contained everything. It contained all her complicated love life, her mm -hmm. children, the, the complex life that she'd had. The Stasi, who were a pretty prim bunch, took one look at this and said, well, you can't possibly publish this because it doesn't reflect well on the, 
on the great socialist experiment in East Germany, you have to take all that out. So the, the, the published version that appeared contained, and it's still a fascinating document, but it can, quite a lot of it was left out. However, being the Stasi, they kept the original manuscript and it's in the Stasi archive. And so I could have access to, the, to what the Stasi didn't want published, which was absolutely brilliant. So I had, mm -hmm. so I kind of had, I kind of had Ursula with me, I felt the whole time. And then finally I had her children. I had two, two of her sons right. uh, were still mm -hmm. alive at the time that I began this. And they have been unbelievably helpful in helping me shape their mother's story. I mean, they, initially they were quite suspicious and who wouldn't be um, of, a, of a writer coming along and sort of, I mean, burglary, you know, biography is burglary. You are, you're going in and taking someone else's life in a way and shaping it to your own ends. But they were brilliant at every stage of saying, that's not quite right, that is right, a bit more of here, she's a bit more like this. So, so as, as time went on, I felt more confident about writing through a woman. And it's been, it's been a fascinating experience because she's a, she really is unlike any woman I have ever come across before. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. There's so much that I want to get back to on this, but I feel that before we can delve into that, we, we must talk a little bit about Ursula the, the spy before we get on to Ursula the, the woman. Um, uh, just because, you know, that that is such a fascinating story as well. And, and as you said, many, I think uh, she's, she's a spy that many of our listeners may not be very familiar with. She, she isn't um, one of those those big names um, that's out there, the Cold War spies, but but she uh, she should be right. She did do some extraordinary uh, spy work. She did. I mean, I mean, your listeners will be familiar with with this distinction. But the the, the key thing about Ursula Kaczynski is that while there are many sorts of female spies through history, they tend on the whole to be couriers, informants, uh, agents. They don't, on the whole, tend to be intelligence officers. Now, the point about Ursula was that she was a trained intelligence officer. She was trained by the Soviet Red Army military intelligence section. So she was a pro. For her, this was a career. It was a vocation. And so I don't know of another example in an intelligence service of any side, West, mm -hmm. East, communist, non-communist, whatever, where there is, an, a, there is a woman officer who makes this difference. So, so that's a crucial distinction to make about Ursula. And that's why I think her claim to be you know, the most important woman spy of the 20th century stands up if your definition of spy is a professional, is somebody for whom this is a career job, as it was for Kim Philby, as it was for mm -hmm. Odegaard, as it was for many of the greatest spies in history. So there's, there's that point to make. Um, and she she comes to it by a very in a way a very circuitous and accidental route as people often do in this world she ursula was born in in germany uh, in berlin to a well-to-do a prosperous jewish german family intellectual bourgeois family uh it was you know she was she was born really into the riot the chaos of weimar germany when everything was falling apart the whole system was cracking there was economic dislocation everywhere and the right was on the rise in the form of fascism and the left was on the rise in the form of communism so you have these two extremes very early on in her life ursula embraced communism wholeheartedly and, and bear in mind that was an entirely respectable intellectual and political position to take there were many many people in the late 20s and, and 1930s particularly during the spanish civil war who believed with absolutely creditable fervor that the only way to stop the rise of nazism was communism that was going to be the the bulwark against this this terrible and that was what ursula did she was a ferocious anti-fascist you know she saw her family being eventually being more or less you know her own immediate family forced into exile many others murdered and killed so for her this was a very personal fight 
So she embraced communism when she was 18 and she never really renounced it. She had doubts, she had was disillusioned. Things, I mean, in a way, her story, in a way, her story really is the story of communism. Yes, no, her, her, very, yeah, her life almost exactly mirrors the dates um, of that. I mean, she, you know, she's she's a teenager when the Bolshevik Revolution takes place, and she's a very, very old lady when the Berlin Wall comes down. And so her story really does cover the whole thing with all its vicissitudes and chaos and ideological purity and the appalling brutality that also went with it. So she's she's a great way of looking at that story. That was partly why I loved it. But so to us, the largely by accident, ended up in Shanghai in 1929. She married a, a man called Rudolf Hamburger, who was an architect. He was a, a left winger, but he wasn't a communist. That was a slight problem for Ursula, but she decided that she would, she was an extraordinary woman. She decided she would eventually convert him, uh, and she sure did. But she wound up in, in Shanghai, and, and Shanghai in 1929 had a good claim to be the most socio-economically divided city on earth. I mean, there were the fantastically wealthy plutocrats, cheek by jowl, with a vast community of impoverished Chinese. And it was where the Chinese Communist Party was born. And all she was all den of spies as well. <laughs> oh, just, I mean, the place was absolutely of the world. Probably. Well, well, certainly of the, of, the, of the Far East. I mean, it was, you know, it was riddled with spies. And it was a great place to spy from because it was it was a meeting point, if you like, of all sorts of different countries and cultures and so on. And the great spy war that was taking place in, in Shanghai in 1929 was the nationalist government uh, attempting to root out communism. Um, you know, trying to get rid of the Communist Party, and they were staggeringly brutal. It's, it's a forgotten, it's a forgotten Holocaust, really. I mean, 300,000 people perished in the White Terror uh, in China uh, as the Nationalist government attempted to extirpate um, communism. And so Ursula knew exactly which side of that story she was on. But it was her, a meeting with a, a woman who, again, is sort of uh, forgotten, really, to history. I mean... Agnes Smedley, not a name that, that, that many people would know today, but she was a very famous radical feminist novelist of the 1920s. She'd written a book called um, Daughter of Earth, which Ursula had read, and she was a communist spy. Um, Agnes, who'd been brought up, believe it or not, in the, in the sort of in the Wild West, um, she was quite a woman, Agnes Smedley. Um, had been recruited by Soviet intelligence in Berlin in the, in the mid-20s. And she and, and Ursula became great friends. And she recruited Ursula. This is how the game works. And so Ursula was then introduced to a man who would completely change her life, a man called Richard Sorger, uh, again, made maybe known to your to your listeners, who yes. was a remarkable, in some ways, as, as Ian Fleming described, in the most formidable spy in history. I mean, his achievements were extraordinary. He was a very brilliant operator. He was also a very adept seducer. Um, and he and Ursula began a love affair. She'd already had a child by her by her husband, and he became her spy master and recruiter. And he he effectively pulled her deep into the world of Soviet intelligence. And from that moment, I mean, once he left Shanghai, she then went to Moscow for training. That was the beginning of her entry into the upper world, really, of Soviet military intelligence. Mm. And, and as you said, um, I mean, what, what is so interesting is we may not have heard of Ursula, but she does bump into these incredible characters who we may have heard of from, mm. from the history of intelligence, Richard Sorge, for example, mm. I mean, mm. a, a real star of, of intelligence history and, um, and the love of her life, uh, arguably. Um, which is, is very interesting. Um, she, she marries uh, a number of times, has three children by three different men, but uh, um, in her sort of uh, uh, old age, she she still looks back to Richard Sorge, right? The, the man who inculcated right. mean, her. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, the psychology of that is very interesting, I think. Yeah. I mean, she, she perhaps she loved Sorge more than anyone else mm. because he was never going to be available to her. You know, mm. he was he was never going to I mean, Sorge was never going to settle down, uh, and he never did, and he had a string of women, and perhaps that was part of his attraction. I mean, 
they kind of fell in, she fell in love with him on the back of a very fast motorbike speeding through the outskirts of, of Shanghai in 1929. He was, who wouldn't? Yes. Who wouldn't? He was pretty irresistible. It would be a great scene in the film if there ever is one. But, but so, yeah, I think the romance, and this is important, the romance that Sawyer brought to that world which for her was obviously a literal romance as well as anything else, was something that she kept for the rest of her life, as well as carrying this torch for Sorge, you know, through all of it, all the strange changes and vicissitudes. But he set her on the path, he inspired her. And by the time he had moved on to, to Japan and he left her life, she was on this road and she was never really ever gonna come off it. Now this, this road she's on, you said, is extraordinary. She, she's trained in Moscow. She ends up being, I'm trying to remember the sequence of events, sent back to, to, to China, actually to Manchuria. Mm. Um, and then she moves to um, Poland, I believe, then Switzerland. Then, the, then, she go, then she spends the rest of her time in Britain. This is during, during the war um, mm. until she eventually escapes to East Germany where she spends the rest of her life but it's and and each of these places she um she is doing essential work she's a radio operator basically that is that is her main skill but she's also running she's recruiting and running spies um and I think it's in Britain that she uh recruits her most famous spy probably somebody our our listeners have heard of um and and uh, Tell us all about that a little bit. Well, as your listeners will know, there are really, in, in sort of Soviet intelligence, there are two types of spy, essentially. Yeah. There are legals and there are illegals. Illegals are civilians who operate under civilian cover, who have no diplomatic protection, but who are living as perfectly normal people while, while operating for an intelligence service. And then there are legals who are people who have diplomatic cover. They may nominally be second secretary or military attache or whatever, but they are, they are professional intelligence officers. Ursula from 1941 to 1949 was the most important illegal officer in Britain. She was living as an ordinary housewife in a very pretty little village in the Cotswolds on the edge of Oxfordshire. She was baking cakes. She was living the, the she was going to the pub. She was living a kind of very ordinary British life. But at the same time, in the outside toilet uh, behind her house, she had built a very powerful radio transmitter with which she was passing the secrets of the atomic bomb to Moscow. Because Ursula's main spy at this point was a man, I, and I'm sure your listeners will know of him, Klaus Fuchs. So Klaus Fuchs was another German communist um, who fell foul of the Nazi regime. He was younger than Ursula. He fled um, to Britain where he was warmly received by the scientific community. He then became involved in the atomic uh, weapons project. And Klaus Fuchs, like Ursula, like many of the, uh, other communists at the time, believed that it was very unfair that, that this technology, this lethal technology of, of atomic weaponry was being shared between the, the British and the Americans, but that it was being denied to the Soviet Union. And so they justified their actions in, in effectively stealing this technology in terms of maintaining the balance of power. At least that is the way they chose to look back on it in later life. We can, we can debate how much it was really that and how much it was just sort of, as it were, espionage business as usual. But, but through Fuchs, who had access to really, you know, sorry, it's a bad pun, but weapons grade into, in, in, in intelligence material, you know, he knew exactly, I mean, every step of the development of the atomic bomb was being passed to Ursula. And she was in turn, well, she would meet with Klaus Fuchs by the end, sort of every, every few weeks in the Oxfordshire countryside in Banbury. They would walk arm in arm through the fields as if they were, as if they were lovers on a secret tryst. And he would hand over vast troves of material, 570 document pages in all. Sometimes it was so huge that she couldn't send it by radio. She would have to meet up with her Soviet handler, um, who was part of the embassy, obviously posing as a, as, a, as a genuine diplomat. She would meet him in the countryside and hand over this huge trove of material. And it, it was so... It was so important, this stuff, that it was, it was they, by the end, they were really working to a shopping list drawn up by Stalin himself. I mean, this, this material was going straight, uh, at Fuchs's request, straight to Stalin's desk. So, so she plays a very, very important 
role in history. You know, and Fuchs is often described as the most dangerous spy in history. Well, well, it wouldn't have worked without Ursula serving as as the conduit to get it all back. So, so when the Soviets detonated their bomb in 1949, that was in large part down to this apparently innocuous housewife living with her three children and her husband Len in a little cottage uh, in the Cotswolds. And that's one of the images that I love in a way from this story is, is the absolute contrast between the person that Ursula appeared to be on the outside, which was a sort of you know, perfectly ordinary wartime woman sort of struggling through, Mrs. Burton they called her. She was married to, to Len Burton. In fact, he was, his real name was Burton, B-E-U, but the British refused to call him that, so they called. So they knew her as Mrs. Burton. They assumed she was English. She spoke very good English. But in fact, there she was. She was Colonel Ursula Kaczynski of the Red Army. Um, and so when she hopped on her bicycle to go into the countryside, she was she was shopping for lethal secrets. Now, I, I've noticed that um, in the United States, your book is... is, is um, um, Agent Sonia, and as we said, the, um, the most daring wartime, Moscow's most war, uh, daring wartime spy. Now, the, the British subtitle is a little bit different. Yep. It's Agent Sonia, lover, mother, soldier, spy. Um, and, um, I mean, first of all, I wonder why that isn't the American title, but... As your listeners will doubtless know, that is a play on the John Le Carre, um, yeah. your Taylor soldier spy. Um, I mean, it does make me wonder, it's going back to what's what's different about writing about a, a female spy. I, I can't imagine a book title that, that reads, for example, you know, Kim Philby, lover, father, son, spy. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I can't imagine that as a title. So, I mean, why, again, there's something different about, about writing about about a female spy and about Ursula in particular, that makes it more important to sort of explore all these different roles that she has. You know, she's a lover, she's a mother, and she's a spy. You've put your finger on it. I mean, the thing that Ursula struggled with throughout her life was how to how to balance, and this will be familiar to many of your, your women listeners, how to balance work and life, how to how to do the thing that she most wanted to do with her responsibilities as a mother and a, and a, and a parent and a, and a wife and somebody who is, you know, and let's bear in mind this is a long time ago when those duties were considered to be, they weren't just, they were requirements of, of women. There was were, were no argument about it. That was what you were supposed to do. And, you know, work-life balance for Ursula was different in this sense in that, you know, uh, the work was was potentially murderous. I mean, particularly when she was in China and in and in Poland, and and again in Switzerland, less so in Britain, since they wouldn't have executed her, I doubt. But she faced sort of daily peril, and she was putting her children at risk. And she knew that's what she was doing, particularly in Poland. You know, she knew that if she was caught, she was heading straight to to the to the death chambers. And, and her children would probably end up in orphanages or much worse. Now, this is one of the things that I found so fascinating about her. She's trying to explore the psychology of, of her as a mother because she wrestles with it. I mean, she, is, she writes really very movingly, very poignantly about the struggle between her commitment to the cause and her own qualities as a mother. And she often berates herself for not being a good enough mother but she knew that if it came to a choice, and she's quite bleak about this, that if it came to a choice between communism and her family, communism would come first. Now, we, maybe that's chilling. Maybe we find that in, in 2020 a kind of unacceptable attitude towards parenthood. It wasn't unique, I don't think. I think a lot of men certainly thought that way. Men, you know, let's imagine the French resistance one of the things about being in the French resistance was that you were prepared to sacrifice your family. That was that was the ultimate sacrifice you were prepared to make. Ursula was prepared to make it. Do we judge her differently because she was a woman? I think we do. I think there is a sort of cultural tendency to, to, to sort of recoil from a mother that could do that. And she, she finds herself sometimes recoiling from herself. I mean, there's a particularly 
painful moment for her when she first goes off to Moscow um, to be trained in technology and sabotage and unarmed combat and so on. And she has to leave her son behind. Yeah. And she justifies it and she goes round it and she, she attacks it from every angle and she, she finds reasons why it is completely reasonable what she is doing. But mm. you can tell that inside there is also a quiver, a really queasy sensation on her part that she's, she's, she's not doing right by them. And the children, the children were damaged. I mean, the children were inevitably damaged. It's, mm. as I said, I interviewed the two surviving sons, sadly only one is still around, but the older one uh, who died last year or rather early, very early this year, um, said to me at one point, said, you know, I never really thought I knew my mother. We yeah. lived in a, in a world that was riddled with secrets, he said. Mm. And I, he knew nothing about his mother's intelligence career until he was in mm. his 40s. I mean, that, so it came as an absolute, well, it didn't come as a complete surprise to him, but it, but it really knocked him over when he found out the extent of it. And he said to me, look, he said, I've been married and divorced many times myself. I, mm. Perhaps I never learned to trust anybody. And I thought that was a really, a really touching mm. piece of introspection there that, that was probably right. I mean, she left, there's a human cost to all these stories. We like to think of them as being somehow black and white moral fables, you know, the goodies win and the baddies lose. And you know, particularly during the war, there's, there's one side that deserves to win and one side that deserves to lose. But it's my experience, the more I write about this world, the more I think that everybody ends up being damaged by secrecy. Secrecy is a kind of toxin and it's addictive and it can do you and those around you extreme damage. Mm. It, I mean, there are so, it is this this mix of, of, of professional and the personal, which I think all of us can relate to, especially mm -hmm. now. And mm -hmm. I, I guess I would say women in particular, but I mean, that, that incident that you talk about, which definitely sticks in my mind, I'm a mother of leaving mm -hmm. her two-year-old son for months on end to yeah. go to Moscow. Um, you know, I, and, and, and she, you do talk in the book about what a struggle it was. It was the worst moment for her and yet, I, I did pick it out here. She says, the thought of giving up my work never occurred to me. <laughs> One of the things I actually thought was very interesting um, was that there actually would be a problem of bringing her two-year-old son to Moscow with her because he was just learning to, to learn to talk and he would probably pick up Russian, which would be a dead giveaway after she left Russia <laughs> right. and would be posted somewhere else and she'd have this little child who, who spoke Russian. Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't just um, a sort of, a, it, it was a practical measure to leave behind mm. in, in every sense of the world, but, word, but I, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I felt that when, when I read mm -hmm. that struggle, and yet there was something extraordinary about her, as you said, she, she, she never thought about giving up her work, and that's just one instance, and there are a number of incidents like that where she basically says, well, you know, it never occurred to me not to do it. Um, I'm not sure, by the way, that that was that it never occurred to her. I mean, that's what she wrote. But I think there were moments in her dark times when I think she really did think, "Can I get out of this?" She would never write. She was much too sort of, much too direct, if you like, in in her ideological beliefs. And yes, there were practical reasons why little Michael couldn't go with her. I mean, very obviously, the Soviet military intelligence service doesn't lay on a crash. So there was going to be nowhere, you know, there was no kindergarten, there was nowhere she was going to be able to put the baby. Uh, but it's, it, it, it was a lifelong struggle for her. And even in, in, in later life, I think she looked back over the commitment that she'd made and wondered if she'd made the right choice. There's a very poignant passage in one of her books where she says, you know, my children deserved a different sort of mother. They deserved a mother who, who, who would have done this. But we have to be careful, don't we, of, of looking at history through our through our prism, because ideological uh, extremism, if you like, of the sort that, that Ursula espoused, and she, she wasn't an extremist, but she was an ideologue. She was absolutely committed to a set of political ideas. That is extremely unfashionable in our day. In fact, we find it pretty repellent. You know, we associate it with extremism. We associate it mm. with, with terrorism. We associate, but, but in the 1930s and 40s, when the world was going to hell in a handcart. I mean, it looked as if the most appalling people were going to be marching through Europe. To take on communism and, and see it as a way of holding back the tide 
was was not was not rare. I mean, it was it was it, that was the way in this extraordinarily bleak ideological twentieth century. Those were the sort of choices you made, and some went one way, and some went the other. Now, what makes her, I think, tremendously interesting is that she stuck with it. Lots of lots of communists converted in the nineteen thirties, fought fascism in the nineteen forties, but then by the time they realised what Stalinism was really about, they began to peel off. They began to have second thoughts. I wish I had met Ursula Kaczynski because one of the things I would love to have asked her was how much did you really know about what what the reality of Stalinism was about? How, you know, when the purges were happening in, in, in the Soviet Union and her friends and colleagues were being wiped out by this state. And she writes about it quite candidly, but I would love to know, and she might not even have told one, how much she really knew about that because it clearly it, it planted a worm of doubt in her soul and she never quite writes or speaks about communism in the same way afterwards the fervor the, the sort of frantic belief of youth has given way to a slightly more cynical sense that she's in this game and she can't really get out and she's this is this is the set of cards that she's picked up and she's gonna have to go with them now i mean that 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 motivation you talk about is, is is always interesting. I think we always have to ask what what motivates people. I mean, ideology is is certainly that that is behind it, and and the and the experiences that, that she has with her friends. You mentioned a number of times uh, where she actually sees a, uh, I think, a dead baby in in the street. I think this is when she's in Shanghai, and she realizes that the cost of this ideological struggle is is very real. Um, but. But, you know, you also make this interesting comment, I think, um, you know, where she said she, she, she became a spy for the sake of the proletariat and the revolution, but she also did it for herself. It's an interesting comment. And, and, and we've talked about her as a woman. Um, we've talked about her juggling these careers, but, you know, and, and, and then you do mention at the end of the book that you know, you would never call her a feminist. You said she's not a feminist. She wasn't interested in that. But, but there is, you know, she she definitely does things her own way. Yeah. Um, she's definitely interested in her own uh, in her own independence, shall we say? I mean, she's you know she she marries several times, but she she is absolutely the one in charge there, right? And the fact yeah. with her 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 um, third marriage, I think. Her, her relationship with Len versus sorry, yeah, yeah. there is this 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 issue of sort of who's you know wearing the pants right in that I mean yeah. she may not be a feminist but she's she is certainly seems to be um, you know I don't know how to say it, a, a modern woman I don't know she she's a unique person and following she follows her own drumbeat <laughs> That's right and I think she believed herself to be quite naturally. The equal of any man. Mm -hmm. I think there was never any question, and it wasn't done as a sort of political statement. It was just something that she observed from experience that there was nothing that they could do that she couldn't do equally well, and in many cases, far, far better. So, so while she's not a formal feminist, she is nonetheless a feminist creature. I mean, she would never have described herself that way. She was not remotely interested in the role of women in, in society. She would never have considered herself to be that. But she just naturally was that. She just, and it was, I mean, as you said at the beginning, the ideological story. I mean, I've never come across a spy who didn't say that they were working for pure ideological motives. But it, equally, I've never come across a spy who really was entirely motivated by ideology. I mean, like everyone else, Ursula is a mixture of parts. She's a, she's a really fascinating combination of driven ideology, but also ambition. Mm. You know, again, something that is not fashionable for women to be in 1935. She wanted to get ahead. She wanted to. She wanted to change the world. She believed she was. She was the second child of six and the eldest of five girls. So there was an older brother who was absolutely doted on by the family, considered to be the apple of everybody's eye. And I, I, that had an effect on Ursula. She, she couldn't quite see why her brother had gone to university and had all these plaudits and had all these great things thrown at her, whereas she was expecting to get married and have children. And, and again, it wasn't expressed as a feminist thing. It was just a kind of, I, I need to get on. I need to, I need to crack on. And she was highly intelligent. She was also 
as I, I think we touched on this at the beginning, she was highly imaginative, Ursula. She wrote from the earliest ages, you know, she wrote poems, she wrote books, she wrote, and then again in her later life, she, was, she consumed books at an avid rate. And she imagined herself to be the prime actor in a rolling drama. And so- real seeker. I mean, there is, there is no denying that. She, she thrived on danger. She did, and she loved risk. And as so often in this, in this particular world that we're talking about, she became addicted to secrecy. People do. Secrecy is a kind of drug. And, and knowing that you are in a tiny elite, that you are living a different life from what it looks like on the outside, is often, I mean, we talked about Kim Philby earlier. I mean, he had that thrill, uh, I think, of knowing a little bit more than the person next to him in the bus queue and not being the person that everyone thought he was. And I I know that Ursula felt the same. When she emerged from her little cottage as Mrs. Burton and climbed on her bicycle and headed off to town, part of her must have been very excited by the adventure of knowing that she was really Colonel Kaczynski and she was going to go and meet a spy in the countryside. So, so don't let's imagine that she's, she's, she's some sort of communist, um, you know, absolute ideological figure. I mean, that is clearly at the core of her, but people change also over time. I mean, I think the, the purity of her ideology at the beginning of her, of her life in, in her 18, when she joins the communist party, it's very different from a kind of, the slightly more war-beaten, knowing, worldly woman who looks back on her communist past as she does in later life and says, hmm, it wasn't all good, it didn't all go the right way, I, you know, there's part of me, and she said, was quite candid about this, she said, there's parts of me that are very disillusioned, you know, the story that I thought I was telling turned out not to be the story that I was telling, and that's, there's, some, there's a great honesty to that, mm. I mean, it made me like her even more. I was going to ask you about that, actually. I, I, I was going to ask you about that because I, I, I think for me um, to read such an in-depth story about a female spy, I don't think that I've ever read a, um, another book about a male spy. And I don't think it's just the male female thing that where I, I felt any ability to relate to the character. <laughs> I find it <laughs> hard to relate to Philby or mm. Hamilton or Ames, I, I, I do. But um, it, it's hard, it was hard for me not to feel some ability to relate to Ursula. There was, there was one incident here and I, you know, I defy any, any woman, especially going through what we're going through now, not to relate to this. She says, you know, she adored her children, but sometimes it was a relief to be able to pause being a mother and resume being a spy. <laughs> 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 I, I, I love that. I mean, you know, which parent right? hasn't thought, my God, let's just park this and I'll get back to the office and what a great yeah. relief that's going to be after yeah. lockdown. Right. Um, and, you know. You know, I think, I think we all, we, you can all relate to that sometimes. So I did want to ask you, you know, you, you've spent quite a bit of time with her. Do you like, do you like Ursula? Uh, more than that, actually, Alexis, I, I actually came to rather love her. There's, there's something so brave and human and humane and funny about Ursula. I mean, she is still quite amused by the irony of this world that she's ended up with. I mean, you know, diehard communists don't tend to be, have a tremendous sense of humor. You know, I, I, you know I, I, I'm not sure dinner with, with, with Stalin or Trotsky would have been an enormous barrel of laughs, but, but Ursula is genuinely stunned and, and, and deeply amused by the kind of strange and terrifying and exciting world that she's got into. And, and so the, I was expecting a leaden ideologue. I was expecting somebody who'd be lecturing me throughout this book that I was going to write about her and that, that I would tire of her in the end, that I would find her, her kind of sense of moral rectitude would drive me a bit nuts. Actually, the, the reverse happened and I found myself sort of inadvertently feeling enormously sympathetic towards her, not necessarily the ideas she espoused and certainly not the regime that she served, but the human predicament and, and the human situation that she found herself in. And it asked me that question, which I always, at the back of my mind, try to make the central part of everything I write, which is the question of what would you do? What, what would you have done as Ursula in this situation? Would you have gone this way? Would you have gone that way? And of course, it's an unanswerable question, but if you can get the combination of, 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 of history right, you can ask it with an urgency that has, I hope, real 
impact sometimes. And I hope lots of, well, not just women, but, but men as well, might read this book and perhaps have a slightly different view. I'm not asking for a more sympathetic view of communism, let alone of Stalinism, but, a, but, but of an understanding of how that extraordinary story unfolded mm -hmm. and what it must have been like to be swept up in that vast current of history that was, that was forcing you into these appalling situations where you had to make choices in circumstances not of your making. I mean, I, I do think that's one of the great elements of these stories is that these are ordinary people in extraordinary times trying to make the best of it. And that's, and Ursula in that way is a very attractive character, I think. Um, there's a wonderful quote you have at the, at the thing you say at the end here, it sort of sums up a, a, a bit of what you said was, she was ambitious, romantic, risk addicted, occasionally selfish, huge hearted and tough as only someone who had lived through the worst of 20th century history could be. Um, and sort of sums it up in a way. I, mm. I, I did have that, it did sort of make me think how she is. She is just, you know, in a swirl with 20th century events and mm. she, she survives it, as you said, with, with, with humor, um, with modesty, um, she has some fun. Um, mm. She thrills to the, some of the dangers of it. She has her high points. She has her low points, but but she does survive. Um, and she's also incredibly lucky. I mean, lucky. let's not forget. I mean, <laughs> we like to think that people create their own fates. Accident plays an enormous amount of. Uh, I mean, the, the mere fact that she survived the purges was extraordinary. Uh, and and in a way, by right, she had no right to do so. She, you know, statistically, she she should have been one of the 1.5 million. But but so she was extremely lucky. She was canny. She was clever. She was adaptable. But she was also selfish. I mean, she wasn't a pure. She's not some plastic heroine. That you know, she's not a, she's so far from being a kind of Barbie doll spy because she's human. She's like the rest of us. She's she's flawed. There are moments of deep despair in her life when she thinks it's all gone wrong. There are moments when she feels she has let other people down. There are moments when she actually feels that, you know, she's she's on her own in an utterly hostile world. And so therefore, there's an awful lot of that that I think we can relate to. And if you're looking for a sort of female James Bond, this is not this is not the story because A, there's no such thing. There's not even a male James Bond, but she's She's, she's much more interesting than that. She's much, much more complicated. And if people emerge from reading this book and say, yeah, I mean, oh, I wish I'd met her, you know, she would have, that would have been absolutely fascinating to, to you know, just to meet somebody who'd lived that breadth of history. Then that, then that will, I think that will be, a, I will feel that's a job worth done, well done. You do mention that she was never betrayed. And, um, and when you speak of her, and, and this certainly comes out in the book, um, I, I sort of feel as if I understand why. Um, and she, she has sort of, uh, she does cast this spell and, and she's cast a bit of a spell over you as well. Well, she clearly um, has. She, I mean, <laughs> she inspired loyalty in a most disloyal game where mm -hmm. particularly, you know, in, in Moscow, in Stalinist Moscow in the 1930s, late 30s, you know, you survived by disloyalty. That was what got you through. You got through by betraying mm -hmm. the person next to you. And not only did she not do that, she was herself not betrayed. And that is, that's pretty remarkable, actually. Um, and I say she was never betrayed. There is one betrayal. I don't want to give away too much. But the betrayal that she does experience comes in the end not from a spy, not from somebody in her own world, but from a nanny that she loved more almost than anybody else alive. And I, I won't explain how that happens, because, but, you know, it's a it's a terrible moment when the domestic, as it were, catches up with the real and and the real threat to Ursula is that somebody that is very, very close to her and her children very nearly destroys the whole thing. So, yes, I mean, I think I did fall for Ursula. I think she's I think that that ability to sort of to bring people with her was pretty was pretty unique, it was pretty unique. I mean, and it was it didn't in a funny way. It didn't come from charm, which is often you know, the, the has managed yeah. to get to, to be I, I, I very much didn't want to say that she just she seduced you because that that wasn't her style right no i don't think she was a she wasn't a seducer exactly but she 
she just made people admire and she was she was one of those people that was a sort of natural missionary if you like i think she she set out to convert and she was a she was a proselyte and normally those people are enormously irritating the people that try and get you to believe what they believe and follow the flag and wear this and you know join my club she wasn't really like that she did it i think more out of sort of slow character really she she just brought these people along with her um and 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 they stayed with her even though even when it was at risk to themselves which is which again is very rare her own and i suppose i suppose in the end probably loyalty was the thing that she valued most and that was why i think she stuck with the, the whole communist project sort of longer and, and, and in defiance really at times of what was really going on in the world i mean we know that she was devastated really by the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 and privately she was distraught but publicly she just stuck to the line because that's what you did in East Germany and and, and that is again you know she's not without moral equivocation Ursula that you know you can feel the queasiness sometimes when she is when she knows she is defending the indefensible. Now I just want to just go back just quickly to to her children who as you said you were able to get in contact with and and to interview for for the book and you do mention that her her oldest son Michael who is is sort of is, is an important part of this story <laughs> um mm. they, he did was he did pass away shortly after reading the manuscript so um I wondered did you what did he think? Did you did you get any feedback from him on the story? I mean, I was very nervous sending Michael the man. Michael was a highly intelligent man. He actually ended up being one of the most celebrated Shakespeare scholars in, in East Germany. He was a man of high intellect, great charm, um, an absolutely lovely man. Suspicious of me to begin with, rightly. You know, he had been brought up, well, actually, he was at the University of Aberdeen uh, when Ursula got out of Britain and, and he spoke this wonderful 1940s English with a very slight Scottish accent that he picked up in Aberdeen because of course he'd never been back to Britain since getting out. Um, but so he was brought up in a kind of in a communist world and he was himself, I, I don't know if he was ever a member of the party, but he was definitely in favour of the East German regime. So, so, so he was suspicious of me. I mean, he wondered if I was going, I think he wondered if I was going to sort of do an attack job on, on, on his mother. So I think when he read, and he was, we sat together for hours and hours and hours uh, going over his memories. And, and as time went on, he became more and more candid about his own emotional journey that he'd made, which as I said earlier, was, was, was not a simple one. I mean, you know, he carried the scars of, of all of this. Although he adored his mother, both, both the sons were extremely proud of their mother. They thought that she'd she changed the world. They thought she'd made the world safer. But on the other hand, all of them, each of them, and indeed the daughter too, who, who I never met, but she did leave a memoir behind, which, which I read. They were, they didn't, they were never quite certain. They loved their mother, but they were never quite certain that they knew her. Yeah. And that, that is a heavy burden. And I hope, I mean, Michael said this when, when he read the manuscript, and I was extremely moved by this. He said, you know, reading this and reading all the other stuff that has come into this book, he said, I think I now probably do understand um, my mother a, a bit better than I did. And he was extremely gracious. Uh, and I, I know he got three quarters of the way through the manuscript because I have his handwritten notes on them, wonderfully correcting some of my German and, and, and even some of my grammar, which was terrific. But then, of course, he didn't finish the book. Yeah. He died. Um, he died while he was reading it. And, and I find that extremely poignant, actually. I think the fact that, that in a way he was excavating where he came from at the, uh, in this world at the moment that he left it, it is, is an image that I will, that I'll keep with me for a long time. Hmm. I just had a, a, a couple of more questions I, I thought we might, um... Just end on a little bit of a lighter note. I, I didn't notice <clears throat> that your spy among friends, uh, Kim Toby book, it, it is to be made into a TV drama. And uh, in fact, they've done a bit of casting there. I think it's um, Damien Lewis. That's right. Yes, and, and some others. So 
And Dominic West from The Wire, famous from The Wire. Exactly. I can't help but thinking, when, when they do make the film, the, the <laughs> TV drama of Agent Sonia, who, who's your choice to play Ursula? Well, it's a really good question. And um, it's a tricky part because, you know, if you do the story justice, uh, and, and I think, I mean, we're in negotiations at the moment to, to turn it into a TV series, in fact, that, that because okay. it's because it, there is so much in this story to turn it into a feature film of 90 minutes would be very hard indeed you'd have to pack so much in the problem however is you've got to you've got to have someone who can play 18 to 80 and that's not going to be easy and you don't want to end up you know so maybe maybe they end up having two actors maybe they have two different people i do think you would want to find um a, a woman actor who can play different she is not a sort of beautiful, she's, she's very attractive in her way, but she's not a classically beautiful Hollywood style starlet. She's a long, she's much more interesting than that. You know, and she's awkward. She's, she's kind of a bit spiny. She's a, she's tricky. She's, she's highly, and, and that's, a, that's a challenging part to play because she's not, you know, she's not a kind of, you know, a sort of easy, easy, easy watching sort of, um, simple heroine so i think it would take it's going to take an actor of, of of who is interested in that other world i mean the person that i would love to do it because i think she's an utter genius is is phoebe waller bridge who who is a british yeah. actress who um yep. who is exactly. yeah who is kind of awkward she just doesn't quite fit into the into the sort of simple roles and i think i saw and she's she actually looks not unlike Ursula, and, and I think she would play it utterly brilliantly. But I can definitely yeah. see that, actually. Well, um, that, that's, yeah. my, that's my fantasy. But, but you know, I mean, who knows? We're, we're a long way from that. But it's so it's, you know, and you've got some great scenes. You can go from Shanghai to Japanese occupied Manchuria, to Poland, to Switzerland, to, to great role writing in the Cotswolds. So, that, you know, the, 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 the scenes are going to be quite remarkable, I think, apart from anything else. It, it sounds like a fantastic idea. It's it's a great book. I, I, I recommend it to anyone who's interested in a fantastic spy story. Um, I I did note that you're you're on to the next one. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, I'm... I've, I've heard rumours that you're um, you're researching a book about Colditz at the moment. Right, I am. I I grew up as many of us did in the in the sort of 70s and 80s with a kind of myth around Colditz. I mean, I even had the board game Colditz. Mm. We watched the sort of TV series. It was a it was a story that's deeply embedded in, in, in Western culture. You know, it's the most famous prison camp of them all. And the, the stories of the escapes and the daring do. All of that is absolutely fascinating. But really, the real story of Colditz is quite different in lots of ways from the sort of boys own paper, jolly escapes, you know, officers with strange facial hair leaping out of turrets and building gliders, you know, it, it's, it's like all wartime stories that have been mythologized into sort of black and white heroes and villains. Actually, the real story of Colditz is much bleaker and much more interesting and much more complicated than that. It was a place rife with snobbery. There was a great deal of collaboration. There was extraordinary competition between the different nations that were imprisoned in college against each other you know so it's for me it's a sort of perfect theater it's an enclosed space with a limited number of actors in which i can try to recreate as closely as i can the reality of what it was actually like so I've, i'm sort of calling it the inside story of colditz um because i think there's a i think that we're, we're we're so sophisticated as as readers and, and historians or you know people who consume history these days that we are quite ready to see our myths re-explored and re-examined and i think it seemed to me that like the i did a book about the sas some years ago which was the which was the special services the british special services the, the very first of, of the sort of special service regiments and and that story was so different the real story was so different from from the one that we've all been fed as, as children that i found that and again, it's a it's an enclosed group. It's a, it's a limited number of people doing a specific thing, and so I'm I am now deep in Colditz, where I shall remain incarcerated um, for the next few months. But I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's a, it's a fascinating story. 
it, I'm sure it is. I look forward to that. Um, I, I sort of, you know, know about Colditz also from the TV show, as you mentioned, but um, also, I mean, we do have some fantastic artifacts at the museum, actually. From of course. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I, I, I wish you were in Washington right now at the museum, and I would show you one of my very favorite artifacts from museums, actually, from, from Colditz. And um, it is a, a shoe polish tin. Yeah. Um, I love artifacts where you look at it and it looks like nothing. Right. And you tell the story and then you look at it again and you say, wow. It's something because, else. Um, it's not just a shoe polish tin. Um, um, it was actually used to make uh, crude um, replicas of Nazi insignia on the uniform. Um, and the process is fascinating. And we actually have um, some examples of those of those Nazi insignia actually next to the to the uh, shoe polish tin on display, and uh, yeah, many people walk right past it. But when you when you tell them, and I always tell people the story, and then they look at it again and go, "Wow." Have well, I'd love to see that. And next time I'm in Washington, I will, if I can ever get back, I will definitely be doing that. That's please do, um, and please come back and tell us about uh, about your book. Colditz. Can't wait. Um, thank you so much, Ben. It was a great pleasure. I enjoyed reading the book. Um, can't wait to read the next ones. Come back and visit us anytime. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Alex. This has been great. Thank you. Take Thanks. care. Bye. Bye. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.com org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.